0: it's good to to be back. Uh, This is week 12 of Systematic Theology Part 2. And so if you look at the back of your handout, you'll see where we are, Um, and you'll notice that this is actually our final topic on Systematic Theology. And not just for this class, but in all of Systematic Theology, this is our final topic. So if you've been with us since Systematic 1 in the fall and through Systematic 2 in the spring. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. You've made it all the way through. Um, So we're going to spend time today and next week discussing the doctrine of eschatology. Eschatology. Um, And then in our last week, which is the 29th, we're going to do a review of everything that we've covered so far this semester. So that's what the next few weeks is going to look like uh, in here. And we, we did this last semester every week. We didn't do it this semester, um, but book giveaway. So I've got a book to give away today. I actually have two copies of it. So this book is by Benjamin Merkel, and it's called Continuity to Discontinuity, a Survey of Dispensational and Covenantal Theologies. So this book. I would commend to you for just a really good and really fair overview of all the kind of different theological systems that are grouped into this category of eschatology. So just really excellent resource, uh, very balanced, very objective, um, but very clear and very comprehensive. Um, And it's very readable too. So it's not a super technical book. You know, it's a it's written at a popular level. So, but it's a great introduction to this topic if you want to understand kind of what the different views are. Would anybody like a copy of this, Justin? Would you like the first copy. Anybody interested in a second copy, Susan? Okay. And we'll be referencing this book a little bit today. Um. But with that, let me me open us in prayer, and we will get started. Uh, Lord, we come to you this morning uh, just humbly uh, before your word, and we want to submit ourselves to it um, as we think carefully about uh, these doctrines. Lord, we know that these are things that you have taught uh, clearly in your word, and Lord, uh, yet... At, at times, there's, uh, there's mystery and there's lack of clarity around issues related to the future. Um, but we know that that is not because of your failure to communicate clearly, but it's just because of our own weaknesses. So I pray this morning that um, you would just uh, open our hearts and our minds to, uh, to think well with, uh, with charity, with humility, uh, Lord, and just with eagerness uh, to, to know all that you have said to us clearly about the future. And so uh it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Okay. So we're gonna start by answering some basic questions about eschatology. Is that for me? Thank you. This always just takes the energy level of the lesson to a different place. Um So we're going to start by answering some basic questions about eschatology, okay? Beginning with the most basic of all, which is what is it? What's eschatology? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Justin. Frank says study of last things. Yeah. Justin, you had a thought? Did you just come up with that? (laughs) Okay. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, so it comes from this Greek word eschatos, which means last. Okay, so the study of eschatology, then, is the study of last things. Um, So when we talk about the future, we know that as humans, generally speaking, we can't know the future. Right? I think we can all agree on that. And for sure, we would say that unbelievers can have no certainty about any future event. But as Christians who believe the Bible, we're actually in a little bit of a different situation. Because although we can't know everything about the future, we do know the one who does, right? Um, So God knows everything about the future because he sovereignly ordained everything that will happen in all of human history, past, present, and future. And while God has told us a lot in Scripture about the past, he actually has told us quite a bit about some major events that are still yet to come in the history of the universe. Okay, So by studying what the Bible says about these events, we can have absolute confidence about the future, Because we know God is never wrong and never lies. Okay, so to sum it up, in systematic theology, eschatology is the study of all the Bible teaches about future events. Okay, simple enough? Okay, so that leads us to our next question. Why is it important to study eschatology? Let's start here. Is it important to study eschatology? Okay, I'm seeing some nods. So then why is it? Why why is what are some reasons why you think it might be important to study?
1: To gain better understanding of prophecy.
0: Mhm. Better understanding of prophecy, yes. What else? Yeah, so Cliff says the destination will dictate much of the way you approach the journey to getting to that destination. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to suggest that there's at least four reasons why um, the study of eschatology is important. And you'll see those four reasons on your handout. Um, So the first reason is that all scripture is God-breathed right? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. So I think many people might look at eschatology as just kind of a secondary matter, um, and they would think that the study of it is unimportant compared to maybe other more primary doctrines. Um, And I would say it is true that our faith and salvation are not tied to a particular eschatological system, that's definitely true, it doesn't take away from the fact that God has given us a tremendous amount of information about the future in his word, okay? And since Christians are exhorted to interpret scripture with precision, and since all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, then I think it would be foolish for a believer to discount any portion of God's Word, least of all, the more than 25% of it that deals with prophetic issues. So um, certainly the excuse that these portions of Scripture are difficult to understand or because they're controversial is not valid. uh, Because it's God himself who has planned the end from the beginning, and he has not revealed anything in his word that should be considered trivial or unimportant to Christians. Okay. We all tracking with that? Okay. Reason number two. As I mentioned, the Bible actually has a lot to say about last things. Um, so let me let me throw some stats at you to kind of illustrate this point. And, you know. These stats may not be 100% accurate because it's left a little bit of interpretation of how you measure these things. But it still illustrates the point well. Okay, So of the Bible's 66 books, 62 of them contain prophetic material. 62 of the 66 books. Uh, so in the Bible, there are 31,124 verses. those 31,000 verses, over 27%, 8,352 of those verses, according to this statistic, refer to prophetic issues. So 27% of all the verses in the Bible speak about the future in one way or another. Um, More than 22% of those prophetic verses refer to Christ's second coming. All nine authors of the New Testament mention the second coming of Christ. Only three of the 27 New Testament books do not mention the second coming of Christ. And of the approximately 333 specific biblical prophecies dealing with Christ's two advents, meaning his first coming and his second coming, only one third of them deal with his first coming. And two thirds of them deal with his second coming. So do those numbers surprise you? Particularly that last one. Like the like you would think that the majority of material in the New Testament would deal with Christ's birth, you know, his incarnation, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection. You know his coming to save his people, and yet the majority of instances in the New Testament actually refer to his second coming. So, given these numbers, then I think we can establish the the point that eschatology is absolutely critical to biblical doctrine. Okay. Because if the Bible has this much to say about something, it stands to reason that it's important to God, and therefore it should be important to us, right? And I just think it's it. it, it, As I was going through this, it struck me that many times we have really strong views on things that the Bible barely mentions, you know, or just infers, or you know, I mean, there's different things of where there's very little biblical evidence to deal with one way or the other, and yet we come down really hard, and we have strong opinions on those, and we have strong convictions on those, and yet at times with eschatology, it could be that we've got over a quarter of the entire Bible that refers to it, and we might be tempted to just go, well, I don't really understand that, it'll all it'll all work out in the end, um, So another objection to studying eschatology might be that it isn't really that relevant or practical to the Christian life. Not really that relevant. But that doesn't actually seem to have been the opinion of the writers of the New Testament. Which brings us to our next reason why eschatology is important. And that is that it's a source of hope, comfort, and encouragement. It's a source of hope comfort, and encouragement. So far from offering ivory tower doctrinal treatises on eschatology, the apostles spoke of the events surrounding the second coming of the Lord Jesus in a very pastoral way. Okay, so to them, there was nothing that could be more relevant or practical to believers than the expectant hope of the future. Kind of like what Cliff mentioned earlier, like, Knowing your destination gives so much clarity and motivation about how you approach the journey, which for us is the Christian life in this world. Um, So, you know, throughout the New Testament, they're reminded to have a glad expectancy as they anticipate the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus. The hope of Christ's return is used over and over in the New Testament as motivation for godly living. And according to the Apostle John, this is a purifying hope. And James says that this hope fosters patient endurance in the midst of suffering and trials. Which brings us then to our final reason that the study of eschatology is important. And that's that fulfilled prophecy shows God's faithfulness. It shows that God's faithful. So prophecy that's fulfilled proves that God is able to accomplish everything he promises. You know, I'm struck by in the the book of Lamentations. So the book of Lamentations is written by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah. And he's walking through the streets of Jerusalem after the Babylonians have come in and just decimated that place. They've torn down their walls. They've burned down the temple. They've taken the people as captives. And, you know, there were all kinds of things happening leading up to that during that siege. You know, people were starving. Mothers were eating their own children. I mean, it was just it was the most devastating thing ever. And yet. Jeremiah looks at all this, and when he gets to Jeremiah or Lamentations 3, he says, what does he say? You remember what he says in Lamentations 3, 21 through 23, in looking at all that devastation? He says, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And Jeremiah could say that because he knew that God had told Israel back in Deuteronomy 28 and in Leviticus 26. He gave them, okay, if you fail to uphold the covenant, if you violate the covenant, if you don't obey me, here are the exact ways in which I'm going to judge you as a people. And when... Jeremiah looked around the streets of Jerusalem, he saw in exact detail exactly what God had said centuries before that he was going to do. And so even in the midst of judgment and wrath and devastation, Jeremiah could say, great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. And so it's the same as we look back and we've seen all the prophecies about Christ, about his first coming, that were that came to be that were fulfilled with such exact and specific details, um, then that can give us confidence to know that that same thing will happen in the future. Like we know God is faithful and we know he does exactly what he says he's going to do. So just to make sure we're tracking, we're still in the introduction and we're just answering some basic questions about eschatology. So we talked about what eschatology is and about why it's important to study, and this leads us to the next question, which is, what are the different views on eschatology? What are the different views on eschatology? So what views, what views of eschatology are you guys familiar? Do your move, Jeremy. <laughs>
1: I'm
0: just gonna keep looking until somebody says something.
1: Most of the churches I've been part of have been dispensational.
0: been dispensationalism. Yes, that's one. What else? So there's two big ones. There's two broad categories. Dispensationalism being one of them. Um, the other one being covenant theology. Or covenantalism, um, and we're not going to go deep into either of these, but just I just want to provide an overview so that you're familiar when people talk about eschatology or systems of eschatology, just kind of what they're referring to and what kind of the key distinctions are between these two systems, okay. And it's important to note that, as we've said, eschatology is the study of last things or future events, but these theological systems actually encompass a lot more than just a view of future events, okay? So, in fact, each of them is seeking to understand God's plan and purpose of bringing himself glory through creation and redemption of people in history. So in other words, each system is attempting to recognize what God has purposed to do and how he's accomplished that purpose in history. Okay, So then, each system is inevitably going to end up with somewhat different views on how future events are going to take place. Okay, But their view of the future is actually a result of how each view, how God has worked throughout <coughs> redemptive history. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. So with that, <clears throat> let's briefly discuss the differences between the two. Okay? So we'll start with covenant theology. So according to covenant theologians, God's plan and purpose can be seen most clearly through either two or three covenants that are not specifically mentioned in scripture, but can be logically inferred from scripture. Okay, So they will point to a covenant of works that God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden, and then a covenant of grace that was made with mankind in response to the fall. Okay, And basic to this system is a unity of the people of God that consists of an unbroken continuity between Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. So when you think about covenant theology, think about continuity. Continuity. So the primary distinction between covenant theology and dispensationalism is in the area of hermeneutics. So, And if you don't know, hermeneutics is just your method of interpreting the Bible. It's the method that you're going to approach Scripture with to understand how to best interpret what it's saying. So kind of the the linchpin that is the difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism is in this area of hermeneutics. Most notably in their understanding of the New Testament's relationship to the Old Testament. Okay? So covenant theologians um, are going to give, and by the way, but Let me qualify this before I get much further into this. What I'm going to tell you are really general uh, summaries of how there, there are, and as we're going to look in our next section, there are very nuanced views within each of these two broad systems, okay? So er, what I'm going to tell you is not what every single covenant theologian would say to the letter, okay, or what every single dispensationalist would say, in fact, there's a pretty wide variation on how they're going to approach these issues. But this is just this is big picture summaries to try to help you get the sense of where each is coming from. OK. So covenant theologians, generally speaking, are going to give interpretive priority to the New Testament over the Old Testament. Okay, They're going to give interpretive priority. Meaning that the Old Testament should be interpreted through the lens of the New. And that the New Testament transcends and often reinterprets the old. Okay. So the result of this approach to interpretation is that many prophetic passages from the Old Testament are thought to be fulfilled spiritually with Jesus and the church as the ultimate fulfillment such that There's not a reason to expect literal fulfillment of promises to the nation of Israel. Everybody got that? Okay, so that broadly speaking, that's what's distinctive about covenant theology. Now let's look at dispensationalism. So like covenant theology, dispensationalism is trying to understand what God has purpose to do creation and redemption and how he accomplishes that in history and the emphasis of this system is on recognizing distinctions or discontinuity in the historical program of God particularly with regard to Israel and the church so when you think about dispensationalism think about discontinuity when you think about covenant theology think continuity When you think dispensationalism, think discontinuity. Okay, And so the name of this system comes from differences in the various periods or dispensations of redemptive history brought about through progressive revelation in God's salvation program. So while they would affirm an essential unity in the people of God with regard to salvation, Dispensationalists believe that there are key distinctions that exist between Israel and the church. And most fundamental to this system is the belief that the Old Testament promises to the nation of Israel concerning restoration in an earthly kingdom are to be, in fact, taken literally. And they would say that these have not been completely fulfilled spiritually in the church, but they still await a future fulfillment for National Israel. Okay. So, as we said, the distinction here is, is mainly on hermeneutics. So, in contrast to covenant theologians, dispensationalists believe that a more literal interpretation should be applied to all passages of scripture, including Old Testament prophecy. Okay, now this approach allows for symbolism only when there's compelling reasons to do so, from their standpoint. And according to this system, there's no priority given, interpretively, to either testament. So they they would say that the starting point for understanding any Bible passage is the authorial intent of the passage to its original audience. Okay. So, It's beyond the scope of this class to get in-depth about the differences between these two systems. But it would suffice to say that as with other issues that we've covered in this class, faithful Christians can be on either side of this, okay? So there are good and godly people on both sides who love Christ and have a high view of his word, which is why UBC does not divide over this issue, okay? You can be covenantal or dispensational, and be a member of this church, and we have both. Can you be in the uh, Yeah, right. Well, and that—that's—that's that's yeah. actually a great segue into our next point, which is there are nuanced views within each system. And so, and so, the way I would love for you guys to think about this, and the way the Merkle book is so helpful, was helpful for me even, and I hope would be helpful to you, those of you who got it. And others, if you wanted to look into it, but is to think of this this as a continuum versus these t- this this dichotomy, okay. Um, and if you look at your if you look at your handout, you'll see I put a graphic on here that I think provides a helpful understanding. It's a it's a helpful way of understanding the different views again, as a continuum, like on a spectrum versus, you know, just this oversimplified dichotomy of I'm dispensational or I'm a covenant theologian. Because what you're going to find probably as you read the Merkel book, if you do or if you look into this issue closer, you're going to find like, oh, that side has some good points over here. That side's got some good points over here. I see what they're saying. That I don't agree with. But you know what I mean? And you're going to end up probably with kind of a blend of some of these. Um, And I think the closer you get to the middle of this spectrum is the closer to where you would probably find the elders of this church, to be honest with you. So I, I would say... I mean, this is not an exact um, approximation, but I think the the elders of this church are going to be somewhere between progressive dispensationalism on the left and progressive covenantalism on the right. I I certainly don't think you're going to find any classic dispensationalists, certainly not in our, our elder board and probably not even among our members. Nor would you probably find a Christian reconstructionist um, on our elder board or among our members. So the closer you get to the middle is going to kind of be where you're going to find people in this church landing. Um, So here's a quote from Merkel. He says, presenting options as mere dichotomy is an oversimplification. Evangelical positions can be placed on a continuum running from belief in the absolute continuity of Scripture to belief in the absolute discontinuity of Scripture. And I think I think as you're approaching these texts and approaching the study of this subject, you're going to find that you're going to find that for anybody who thinks there's absolute continuity and that there's absolutely no differences from the old covenant to the new, from Israel to the church, I mean, that just does not seem to be faithful to Scripture. Nor if you find somebody who thinks that you've got to chop up history into all these infinite number of dispensations and all these infinite Like, that doesn't seem to be very tenable position either. So what you're going to find is the, the, the more you get into this issue, I think that the more you probably would find yourself moving toward the center on the continuum, which is what makes this a, a challenging issue. So here's what, um, in order to determine where someone's particular view falls on the spectrum, Merkel asks four key questions of each view. What is their basic hermeneutic? What is the relationship between the covenants? What is the relationship between Israel and the church? And what is the kingdom of God? So where you land on those four issues is going to kind of determine where you are on this spectrum. And again, the idea is not that you under, understand each of these views fully, but just that you grasp the concept that the distinctions are more of a continuum than a dichotomy. And I think sorting through and debating the differences in each system are where many people get bogged down on this topic. And my goal in this class is actually would be that we don't spend too much time doing that. Instead, I want us to focus on those aspects of eschatology on which the Bible is crystal clear and on which all Bible-believing Christians agree. And that leads us to our last question about eschatology. Before we get to there, any questions from you guys about any of that? Yes. Yes. Yep. just
1: curious, um, on this con- uh, continuum, mm-hmm. would historical premillennialism be more towards the dispensational side?
0: Yes. Yeah, yep. so premillennialists are going to be on the dispensational side. And actually next week we're going to talk about different views on the millennium. So we we will talk about that. Um, even though that doesn't kind of fit into our major outline, I felt like we couldn't not talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, just like with these views, your particular view on the millennium is gonna be determined by your hermeneutics, and it's gonna be it, it's gonna be very nuanced. So there's there's a spectrum of millennial views in the same way that there's a spectrum of eschatology views in general. But to answer your question, premillennialism definitely would be in the dispensational category. Cliff?
1: It's also interesting to note that, so one of the big proponents of classic dispensationalism was Schofield. Yeah. The Schofield Study Bible. Yes. Yeah. Which was really popular, like, at the beginning of the 20th century Mm -hmm. when neoliberalism was kind of creeping into the church. Yeah. And so Schofield, praise God.
0: Yep. And just kind of by way of osmosis adopted his assumed it yes, that's right yeah, yeah no it's a it's a, it's a great point um and yeah you, and you can be you can be thankful for his work, right. even though we look at it now and go, okay, that's probably a bridge too far on on the literalness of your approach to scripture, but praise the Lord that he was standing on hey, this is inerrant inspired and it's clear, and we can take it at face value. Yeah. Anything else? Okay. So our last question is, with all this information on the different views, what aspects of eschatology are essential to our faith? In other words, what must faithful Christians believe about the future? What do you think? What must Christians believe about the future? He's coming back. Christ is returning. Yes, we must believe that. absolutely. What else
1: point, is and new and new earth.
0: Yes. Frank cheated, but that's fine. Yeah, it's right there. Um, yes. So so let me, let me read um, our statement of faith, from our statement of faith, on the future. This is what we believe as a church. We believe that the end of the world is approaching, that at the last day Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead, both righteous and wicked, from the grave to final retribution, that a solemn separation will then take place, which will fix forever the final state of persons in heaven or hell, the wicked being adjudged to everlasting conscious punishment, and the righteous to everlasting life and joy. So, from this, I think we can take three essential elements. Which, as you guys said, are that Christ is returning, judgment is coming, and that there is a new heaven and a new earth for those that belong to him. And, uh,. And so, this is going to serve as the outline for the rest of our time together. So, for the rest of this class and the next week, we're just going to get into these essentials and, and consider these truths that Christ is returning, judgment is coming, and that there's a new heaven and a new earth. And so, let's start then with the second coming of Christ. So, to begin at the end we know that the bible promises a literal return of christ jesus came once to make atonement for sin and he will come again to consummate his rule so hebrews 9 27 and 28 say and just as it as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment so christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So this truth is mentioned and assumed throughout the New Testament and was taught by the apostles. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Uh, The Lord's brother, James, refers to the future expectation of this coming when he writes, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. And so where did they get this understanding that Jesus would return again? From Jesus himself. From Jesus himself, exactly. He kind of gave us the spoiler. He did, yeah. He he spoiled the ending, didn't he? Um yeah, Matthew twenty four, verses thirty and thirty one. Um, when he was sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells them, At that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to another. Okay, so let's look then at this second coming of Christ. Um, What is the nature of it? What will it be like? What can we say about it from Scripture? Well, the first thing that we can say is that his coming will be personal, visible, and bodily. It will be a personal, visible, and bodily return. So, While this seems self-evident in a church like ours, it was once popular in Protestant liberal circles to believe that Jesus himself would not come back. But that instead, the air or the aroma of Christ would come back, and an acceptance of his teaching and an imitation of his lifestyle of love would increasingly fill the earth. Doesn't that sound nice? And then the ethical norms from the Sermon of the Mount would be established, and a utopia would be enjoyed by all.
1: Yeah, we're real close
0: to that. <laughs> yeah, it seems like we're headed in the wrong direction so far. If this is what's happening, um, the aroma is not here yet. If this is true, um, but this is clearly not the message that Scripture gives us. Right? The Bible teaches that the incarnation of the Son of God was not his last manifestation in the flesh to men on earth. John says in 14.3, John 14.3, that he will come back. When Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts 1, without delay, two angels came and said to the disciples, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back, in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And so his return won't be a spiritual coming to dwell in the people's hearts and to make them happier and more ethical, but it will be a visible, bodily, and personal return. He is going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives, which is exactly where he ascended into heaven. And it's going to be a glorious return. Uh, Jesus tells us that he's going to return in his father's glory. And it appears that this glory will be visible to everybody. In Revelation 1-7, John writes, Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Likewise, in 1 Thessalonians, um, the passage that we read earlier, 416, Paul says, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God. Christ's return will not be secretive or stealthy. It will be loud and clear and announced, and everyone will know that the Son of God has come. will be a fitting return for the King of Kings. So this brings us to the next aspect of Christ's second coming, which is that the timing is unknown. You could also say it will be sudden. So scripture does not reveal to us the time of Christ's second coming. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So why do you think God doesn't reveal to us the exact time when Christ will return? Why do you think he doesn't want us to know that? And how does not knowing affect our Christian life? Complacency, laziness, absolutely. And you're you're exactly right, Jess, because if we keep reading in Matthew 24, Jesus makes it clear why it's not for us to know when he will return. He says in verses 42 through 44, Keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And then he goes on in Matthew 25 and illustrates this even more with the parable of the ten virgins. And he's driving home this message to keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour of my return. So I think we could sum it up by saying he wants us to live with the kind of urgency and intentionality that expecting him to come at any time promotes. And thus, he wants us to avoid the kind of complacency we might have if we knew the exact time of his return. So probably a lot of you had a situation where you were kids and your parents gave you a list of chores and they were leaving and they said, you need to have this list done by the time we get back. So if you were like me, if I knew when they were coming back, if I knew where they were going, I could estimate kind of, okay, it's gonna take them about two hours. And so what would I do for the first hour and 55 minutes? I would just kind of, yeah, be lazy, just hang out, do nothing, procrastinate. Um, And then in the last five minutes, I would scramble around to try to slap everything together and get it done. Um, And so this is, Jesus does not, he intentionally is withholding this knowledge from us because he wants us to live as though he could come at any time. He wants us to live with that kind of expectancy, that kind of urgency. And so despite this clear teaching that no one knows the day or the hour, people do seem to have an insatiable desire to try to answer the when question of the second coming. So you see this with different ministries or organizations who try to attach every headline or every world event to some kind of biblical prophecy, and they claim that they can read the tea leaves to know exactly the time when Jesus is returning. And so I don't know about you, but... If the son didn't know, I'm going to guess they don't know. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and it's, it's not a sign of godliness to try and predict something with certainty that God says we won't know. So Jesus commands us to watch and be prepared for his return. We're to be ready as for an event that could happen any time which seems to indicate that it's possible that Jesus could come back anytime, even today. But wait a second, you might be thinking to yourself, doesn't scripture also say that certain signs must precede the return of Christ? Yes, this is true. It's a great question. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21 all contain... Christ's teaching on signs that will accompany the end of the age. Luke 21, 11, for example, Jesus said, There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilence in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. So this dilemma is what theologians refer to as the question of the imminence of Christ's return. The imminence of Christ's return. So what do you guys think? How do we reconcile passages that warn us to be ready because Christ could suddenly return at any moment? How do we reconcile that with passages that indicate that several important events must take place before Christ can return? So some of those signs are proclamation of the gospel to all nations, salvation of the fullness of Israel however you interpret that the tribulation a great apostasy the rise of the antichrist wars earthquakes famines so how do we reconcile what seems to be very clear commands from Christ to live as though he could come back at any time because he could with all of these things that seem that they need to happen first. Anybody got thoughts on that? It is tricky.
1: The same way you reconcile God's sovereignty with human responsibility. Bingo. They're friends, not enemies. <laughs> That's good. They're both in the
0: book. Yes. Yeah, and I, I I put that exact example here. Um thank you, Jeremy. Yeah. So Jeremy's noting the same way we reconcile God's sovereignty with man's responsibility. Um, We need to be comfortable with a measure of tension and mystery here. Um, We must affirm that the Bible clearly teaches that both are true and that an inability to reconcile them is due to our own limitations. All of it is perfectly reconciled in the mind and purposes of God. So that's number one. I think. That's how we need to approach it for sure. Second, I would say also that Peter reminds us that the Lord has a different perspective on time than we do. So soon with him may not be what we expect. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow, About his promise, as some count slowness. So, is Jesus coming soon? Yes. Could that be 10,000 years from now? Absolutely. That would be about a week and a half for God, right? In God's economy of time, Christ ascended two days ago. So he's patient, in his bu- and his view of time is much different than ours. So that's another kind of principle that I would say. One is the one Jeremy mentioned, understanding that there is tension between two seemingly contradictory truths that are not contradictory at all, but there's mystery there. The other is that God's... Uh, idea of time his perspective on time is different than ours Um, but as to the question of whether or not jesus could come today given that there are signs that must precede his return there are a couple of different ways that christians try to resolve this okay i'll give you a couple some would point to a rapture of the church that is a separate event from the second coming okay So proponents of this view will point primarily to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, and 17 to say that this rapture will happen when Christ meets his people in the air and takes Christians out of the world. And they would call that a coming for his saints that comes before the coming with his saints, which would happen after seven years of tribulation that have occurred on the earth and then a visible, public, triumphant coming in which Christ comes to reign over the earth. Okay, So they would say that, yes, Jesus could come today to rapture his church, which would then initiate the seven years of tribulation, where all the signs Jesus spoke about will happen preceding his second coming, where he doesn't just meet his people in the air, but he then sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, like we talked about that's one one way that people will resolve this wayne grudem proposes an approach to resolve this tension which is to say quote i'm quoting grudem here except for the spectacular signs in the heavens it is unlikely but possible that these signs have already been fulfilled so he takes the unlikely but possible approach And says the only sign that seems certainly not to have occurred, which is the darkening of the sun and the moon and the falling of the stars, could happen within the space of a few minutes. And therefore it seems appropriate to say that Christ could now return at any hour of the day or night. And it is therefore unlikely but certainly possible that Christ could return at any time. And then he proposes the question, is it possible to be ready for something that we think unlikely to happen in the near future? And he says, certainly, yes, it is. Everyone who wears a seatbelt when driving or purchases car insurance gets ready for an event that he or she thinks to be unlikely. So in a similar way, it seems possible to take seriously the warnings that Jesus could come when we are not expecting him, And nonetheless, to say that the signs preceding his coming will probably yet occur in the future. So regardless of the approach that you take, I think we all need to exercise humility and trust in God that he is sovereign over all of it and that everything will happen exactly the way he intends it. And however it happens, it will be glorious. Okay, and you won't be disappointed. (laughs) Whatever your view is. When it happens, you're going to be stoked about it. (laughs) And this brings us lastly to our last point, which is that we should eagerly long for his return. And we've mentioned this already, but it bears repeating. Christ's second coming is our blessed hope. And regardless of the specific details of Christ's return, our response should be the same. We should eagerly desire and long for Christ's return in glory. It's the overriding hope of the Christian life that this will take place. And scripture is very clear about this. So we don't know when Christ will return, but we should strive for holiness and stand firm while we wait. Lots of scriptures that we could reference. But for time, I'm I'm just going to, give you this quote from the Puritan Richard Sibbs. Sibs? Sibbs, I've heard both. Um, God reserves the best for last. A Christian's last is his best. God will have it so. For the comfort of Christians that every day they live, they may think, my best is yet to come. That every day they rise, they may think, I am nearer to heaven one day than I was before. I am nearer death and therefore nearer to Christ. What a solace this is to a gracious heart. A Christian is a happy man in his life, but happier in his death because he goes to Christ to be with Christ. And his return is that event that gives us this hope as Christians. So it confirms that history is not this cycle of despair, like it feels like it is, but the story of God redeeming a people to the glory of his name. The doctrine of the second coming proclaims that God is in control and that Christ will come again for his chosen ones. Jesus said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So I'll leave you with this thought. I would ask yourself, how many times a day do my thoughts turn to this hope? Is it a lot? Is it often, occasionally, rarely, never? If we're not turning to this hope more often, then it could be that we love this world more than we should. So let us take delight in this great hope that we have of Christ's return. Any final questions or comments? Um, what did you mean by writing discontinuity and continuity on both sides of what? Um, um, discontinuity and continuity on both sides of what? The of the, gra- the chart there? Or the... Yeah. So that that's just illustrating that those are kind of the two poles on this spectrum. So as you move out toward the end of each pole, you're moving more toward a view of discontinuity or more toward a view of continuity. And that just means that like how much how much do you think that from the beginning of scripture that the people of God, God's plan of salvation, God's plan of redemption, the way that he has worked through his people, how much do you think that there is total continuity between that? Meaning there's no difference between Israel and the church. There's really no difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Or how much differences do you see? That's kind of the distinction between continuity versus discontinuity. So and that that's just kind of the, the way I was I, I would, you know, encourage you to think about the different systems instead of like this dichotomy of well, there's covenant theologians and they think this and there's dispensationalists and they think this. Understand that it's more kind of a spectrum, it's kind of a sliding scale, moving either toward continuity or discontinuity. Make sense? Jacob. Yeah, I I would say that um, so the theological term is the kenosis, like it, it is the sense that Christ in his humanity gave up or set aside some of his divine attributes. And he set aside certain aspects of his omniscience that as the eternal son of God, equal with the father and with the spirit from eternity past. He knows when the the return is going to be. But I think in his humanity, there are certain instances that we see in Scripture where for the sake of being human, for the sake of being a sympathetic high priest, to be tempted to sin yet without sin and all those kinds of things, he set aside willingly and voluntarily some of those divine attributes. And part of it would have been his omniscience. There were sometimes where he did know things that he couldn't have known aside from being the son of God. But there were other things that he 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 clearly had d- chose to not know. Is that helpful? Yeah.
1: helpful.
0: Okay. Anything else, did Jeremy
1: Yeah. Uh, but it's helpful even as you were talking about it to think about like this morning as we gather with the church, as we share in the Lord's table, those are the types of things that God has given us mm. to remind us, like Sib said, mm. the best is yet to come. Yeah.
0: Very well said. Thank you for sharing that. And I think um, that even has a lot to do with in this discussion, I think it's most helpful for us to focus on the things that are clear that we all know and that we all agree on rather than spending as much time trying to sort through the details of which a lot of people disagree on because those th- that's that can be a helpful thing to do. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. Try to understand, are you more dispensational or do you more see things like covenant theology? There's nothing wrong with that, but that can be less devotional and less stirring for our hearts and for our worship. Like Jeremy said, than just focusing on the things that we really know. We know Christ is coming. He's coming. He's coming back and he's coming for us and he's coming in power and he's going to set all things right. And like there's much that we can all agree on and we can all get really excited about and and can really spur us on to worship without focusing as much on the details that we disagree on so yeah thank you for sharing that all right well let me close this in prayer <clears throat> uh lord you are uh you're so good um and your truth is uh so uh deep and it's so profound um, and your plan of redemption is so glorious, um, what you have done for us in the past, what you are doing for us in the present, and what you will do for us in the future. Uh, Lord, we're in awe of all of it. And, uh, and just as um, Jeremy encouraged us, I pray that as we go into our corporate gathering um, and as we partake of the Lord's Supper, uh, that we would be mindful of uh, all those things, what you have done for us, but what you still will do for us, what's yet to come, and that would move us to, um, to love you more, uh, to worship you uh, on an even deeper level, um, and that you would just be glorified uh, during that time. And it's just in Christ's name we commit it into your hands. Amen.